Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 5, Project-Based Learning, Promises, and Perils. I want you to think back on your own education, however recent or distant that might be. Take a moment to think of the assignment or experience that you feel was the most successful in teaching you a valuable skill or knowledge that you have now. I've asked this question of adult learners many times in several different countries, and certain elements always come to the forefront. There was some experience that people had that involved not just learning about something in the abstract, but doing something active to learn in some way that made the learning come alive. Maybe they learned from or presented to people and resources beyond the classroom. Maybe they built some sort of product that seemed far more practical and engaging than just bubbling in answers in a test. Maybe they got to exercise choice in what they learned or in how they presented it, or otherwise got a chance to put their own personal creative stamp on their work. Was any of that true for the experience that you just thought of? I'm betting it is. I can recall units from my own high school days, like a pond study, where our biology teacher had to spend a few days out in the field by a local pond taking samples and drawing images of the organisms we saw under microscopes, such that we could, and did, create our own research-based guide for the pond. I'm not a biologist today, but I can still identify a euglena versus a rotifer versus a hydra when it comes to looking at microscopic water life. I also remember lessons about the Vietnam War, taught by a veteran who brought in a wide variety of guest speakers for us to interview, and who had us write our own narratives about our relationship, not only with that conflict, but the first Iraq war, which was happening right at that time, and draw connections between the two. I remember learning about literary devices through writing my own short story anthology as a senior capstone project. I remember these lessons because they were personal. They involved complex learning. They were connected to things that mattered to me, and they gave me a chance to create things that mattered. And, sadly, I remember them because they were the exception, and remain the exception today, when it comes to what happens in most U.S. schools. From this podcast's very second episode in Season 1, we explored research into why school is so boring and disengaging for so many students. And this and other episodes have detailed how the structure of today's schools, focused around supporting an environment of rote memorization, recall, and rule compliance, is still lagging behind the contemporary mission of schooling which is to prepare students for a world in which conditions are always changing, and the skills vital for citizenship and economic success involve creativity, adaptability, critical thinking, and collaboration. In this episode, we're going to focus on an approach to teaching and learning that really speaks to those missions. It's called project-based learning, and you've probably heard of it as it's been a buzz phrase in the educational world since at least the 1990s, Although, to be fair, the concept goes back at least as far as John Dewey and his protege, William Kilpatrick, at the turn of the 20th century. And if you've listened to season one of this podcast, you'll also have learned about Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, Maria Montessori, John Amos Comenius, and a host of others who had both preached and practiced the tenets of what we now call project-based learning for many years before. Anyway, project-based learning, or PBL as it's often abbreviated nowadays, can mean different things to different practitioners. But at core, it's about students learning something through the act of creating some sort of product or performance, which they need that knowledge or skills to complete, and the completion of which demonstrates their learning. Project-based learning, in the words of PBL guru Thomas Markham, quote, integrates knowing and doing. 
Students learn knowledge and elements of the core curriculum, but also apply what they know to solve authentic problems and produce results that matter. End quote. Apply really is the key word here. To apply learning means you can take what you know and put it to work in contexts outside of those in which you originally learned it. In the words of the late Ava Reeder, a high school math teacher from Seattle who became something of a PBL celebrity in the late 1990s, quote, it became immediately apparent to me as a teacher that simply talking to kids didn't cause them to really deeply learn concepts. They might learn the material, learn it so they could spit back formulas and so on in a paper and pencil test, but they weren't able to apply it in a context that was outside of that worksheet or book page, end quote. As we'll see later on in this episode, the very strength of PPL, that students get to learn through putting content and skills to use in the real world, is also what holds back many schools and teachers from employing it. Because it's so real-world based, it doesn't always line up neatly with the traditional means of assessing learning in schools, those very paper and pencil tests, and more importantly, where schools are concerned, those statewide standardized exams on which students' graduation, teachers' employment, and schools' ability to operate are all based. We'll take some time to dive into the research on PBL's outcomes and where those outcomes are and are not captured by traditional school assessments in the second half of this episode. First, though, we need to take a closer look at what project-based learning actually is. And it turns out, perhaps unsurprisingly, that it can look like a great many different things. For some teachers, PBL consists of having a big project at the end of an otherwise traditionally taught unit of study, which asks students to create some tangible thing that demonstrates they've mastered the skills from that unit. For example, a social studies class spends three weeks studying how a bill becomes law through the usual complement of lectures, readings, and discussions, and then for the final project, the students create a fictional piece of legislation and then hold a mock debate about it. So that's some teacher's definition of PBL, a unit with a big project at the end. For others, true PBL is where the project is the means by which, or at least the context in which, students learn the content or skills to begin with. By this definition, PBL is more than having a project at the end of a unit. It's an entire pedagogy. In other words, from the very first lesson in a unit, the project begins, and it is during the course of completing that project that students learn the content and skills necessary to achieve the goals of having that big product or performance completed by the end. It's not necessarily that every single day's lesson has to involve creating that thing, but from day one and throughout the unit, students know that creating that thing is the reason they're doing this learning. For an example of this kind of PBL, a class of students finds out that they've been tasked with creating a school store that's going to sell items to raise money for school athletic teams. And for that reason, they're going to need to learn algebra, sufficient so that they can come up with formulae and equations to govern inventory and bookkeeping. They may still be learning through lectures and worksheets and discussions and all those usual mechanisms of school, but the context in which all of that happens is always the preparation for creating the store. That's what the examples in their lessons are about. That's what the quiz questions along the way are about. It's what they know their efforts are aimed at, and operating that store successfully is what will provide the proof of their learning. The California-based Buck Institute for Education has become something of the standard bearer for PBL since the 1980s, and they're all about that second kind of PBL, PBL as pedagogy. And at this point, I need to do a small diversion into the Buck Institute's history, because it is pretty wild. 
The Buck Institute began with a woman named Beryl Buck. She and her husband, a physician, lived in Ross, an affluent town in Marin County, California, near San Francisco. They'd invested heavily in a local oil company called Belridge Oil, originally considered to be a modest operation until new technologies allowed them to dig in 1934 what would become the deepest oil well in the world. The company was doing quite well at the time of Buck's death in 1975, such that her 7% share was worth $7.6 million, or close to $35 million in today's money. And in her will, Buck instructed that all of that money be used, quote, for exclusively nonprofit, charitable, religious, or educational purposes in Marin County, California, unquote. Pretty amazing, right? Well, friends, you ain't seen nothing yet. The thing is that as the will was being hammered out in probate over the next few years, the shareholders of Belridge sold their company to Shell Oil, and that $7.6 million in stock that Buck had willed, well, it became $240 million, or about $780 million in today's money. That is, to use technical financial terminology, a hell of a lot of dough. So much so that the San Francisco Foundation, the small charitable organization charged with dispensing the funds, suddenly found itself right up there with the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Brothers with an instruction to spend that equivalent of almost $1 billion of today's money all in Marin County, which, to be fair, did have some poor people, but was for the most part a very affluent suburb. It was, in fact, the second wealthiest county in the United States at the time. Martin Paley, the San Francisco Foundation's director at the time, decided that it just wasn't conscionable to restrict all that money to charities in Marin County. And so he tried to break the will and spread Buck's wealth around to places that needed it more. And oh boy, did all holy heck break loose. The media called the legal storm that followed all kinds of things, from the battle for Buck to the Super Bowl of probate. Over 110 lawyers wound up getting involved, and if you want to go down the rabbit hole, there is a wealth of literature written about the various legal and financial battles and precedents set by this case. So feel free to follow the links on my website. After much acrimony, in 1986, the San Francisco Foundation was forced to withdraw their court case in favor of a settlement agreement that 80% of the money would be spent in Marin County, but the remaining 20% could be set aside to fund in perpetuity three major projects based in Marin, but whose work was to benefit, quote, all humankind, unquote. One of the key figures in determining how this money would benefit all humankind was then-Deputy Superintendent of Marin County Schools, Carolyn Horan. Horan was called upon repeatedly during those years of court proceedings as an expert witness on educational issues, and she led the development to use some of those ungodly sums of money to form a research institute with a mission to, quote, address educational issues of national and global significance, unquote. And that is how the Beryl Buck Institute for Education got its start in 1987. They eventually dropped Beryl's first name, and nowadays generally go by the acronym BIE, by the 1990s, BIE had settled on project-based learning as the core of its research focus. The PBL projects it began in Marin County started to spread through the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond, with the Buck Institute partnering with other school districts as well as other foundations who were interested in school reform. Remember, this was the dawn of the outcomes-based movement in public education, which we talked a lot about in other episodes of this podcast, especially Season 1, Episode 3, 
and the last three episodes of our third season. As a quick review, this was a time when there was a national call to action to fix American public education, a renewed awareness that public schools in the U.S. were so incredibly variegated and the resources they could bring to bear on behalf of the wide-ranging and divergent needs of their students so incredibly unequal that a high school diploma revealed very little in the way of skills that students had actually mastered, or in the case of too many students, not mastered. And this set off a sort of gold rush for who would get to set the agenda for state or even, it was for a brief time considered, national educational restructuring. And what we got eventually was the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001, bringing state-by-state -state standards for learning, with lots of high-stakes testing for the purposes of evaluation, and not much in the way of actually equalizing the financial disparities that created and to this day continue to create vast differences in the resources available for, and thus the quality of, American students' educational experiences. We know the end of the story, or at least the current chapter, that the tests used for assessment began leading the pedagogy, forcing skill and drill approaches that ironically, in the name of increasing school quality, wound up crowding out a lot of room for the various sorts of higher-order learning that, as we talked about in the introduction of this episode, contemporary students really need to be developing. All through this process, the Buck Institute was researching the kinds of approaches to teaching and learning which did promote higher-order thinking, and as the years passed, they refined their definitions and best practices for project-based learning into what they now call the five keys, and that's what we're going to talk about next. The first of those five keys is that project-based learning must be core learning. Too often, said BIE, teachers consider projects to be fun activities that they may or may not find time for at the end of a unit. The poetry coffeehouse or earth science field trip, a way to reward or take to the next level what they've taught all year. Basically that first model of PBL that we talked about earlier on. BIE called this sort of project dessert as opposed to what they felt PBL needed to be, the main course at dinner. In other words, the stuff that students are supposed to be learning anyway, as dictated by their state's learning standards. If students are supposed to be learning about geometry anyway, then they should learn it through actually building something and figuring out all the angles and measurements involved. If they're learning about persuasive argumentation, then they should do it in the context of developing proposals to reform their actual school, or writing letters to the editor of their local newspaper about issues in their community that they actually want to address. That's the second of the five keys, the fact that that product or activity has to have a, quote, real-world presence, unquote. So, for example, if in a unit students are learning about famous European explorers, then, as BIE envisions it, they shouldn't just be learning about Columbus and Magellan and De Soto. They should also be, all along the way, applying the idea of exploration to their own personal world. For example, they might make maps of a part of their neighborhood where they had never been before, and record and process their observations and experiences along the way. They would pursue essential questions such as, what is a map? What does it reveal? What does it leave out? And apply those to the map that they made, as well as to the ones made by the explorers they're studying. They might even go on to ask the question, what does it mean to call a land unexplored? Who is it unexplored to, and to whom is it familiar? They can then reflect on and apply these questions simultaneously in the historical and in their present-day neighborhood contexts. As another example, students could be studying the carbon cycle so that they can produce a plan to reduce the school's carbon footprint. 
students, faculty, and administrators could all vote on the best plan and then actually implement it. And think about what that means. Every student or group of students is coming up with their own particular proposed solution. In project-based learning as the Buck Institute envisions it, you don't end up with 25 copies of the exact same product at the end. Students are developing their own particular solutions and then have to justify and argue for and reflect upon them. And that can make assessment of project-based learning challenging, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So those first two keys we've mentioned, core learning and real-world product, can be captured with what BIE calls a driving question, a question that always ends in a clause beginning, so that. A driving question for a physics unit might be, how can we understand the concept of velocity or acceleration so that we can launch a rocket as part of the entertainment at the pep rally a month from now? Or, in social studies, how can we understand how a bill becomes law to a sufficient extent so that we can actually propose a new law to our state legislature? The so that is really the key to PBL, that the learning is always directed towards a specific, happening very soon outcome. It's the easy and tangible answer to that eternal student question of, why do we need to be learning this? That beats the heck out of, well, because you'll need to know this someday, or because it's going to be on the test. When I consult and give coaching sessions about project-based learning, I sometimes get pushback from teachers who say that a given concept, say differential calculus, is just too abstract to have practical enough applications to a real-world so-that kind of project. I have to say I have a hard time buying this. Even if you can't replicate the way aerospace designers use calculus in order to program satellites because, I don't know about you, but my supplies budget doesn't generally run in the billions of dollars, you can still usually design an engaging simulation that asks students to utilize these skills and perhaps then present that simulation to folks who work in the industry who can then give students feedback or judge some sort of contest. How can we design this thing so that we can have a conversation with industry experts is still a pretty cool project idea and still brings the content to life in a very engaging and practical way. And if a particular skill or content is truly so abstract as to defy any kind of practical application whatsoever, then maybe we have to truly ask ourselves, is this something worth including in a K-12 curriculum? Maybe we can save the angels on heads of pins type material for a university study? That all said, project-based learning isn't all about that product you get at the end. It's also about what we call, in EdSpeak, disciplinary literacy. What that means is that PBL is designed to not just teach knowledge and skills, like what is a topic sentence or how do you solve a word problem. It's also about helping students learn and practice the skills of a given academic discipline. In other words, how is this content you're learning used by practitioners in the world beyond the classroom? For those studying science, disciplinary literacy encompasses what a scientist actually does observe, hypothesize, test, record, draw conclusions, revise, and re-experiment. Regardless of whether the content taught in this unit is about plant cells, chemical reactions, or planetary orbits, PBL should be about engaging students in practicing all of those disciplinary literacy skills. A question for disciplinary literacy in English is, what does a fiction writer do? Reflect on life experiences, brainstorm, imagine characters and settings, Put those characters in situations of conflict, create detailed descriptions, and revise, revise, revise. What does an historian do? 
The disciplinary literacy of history involves designing and pursuing research questions, investigating and interviewing, analyzing primary and secondary sources and artifacts, crafting narratives and sharing ideas with colleagues to develop collective understandings, which include debating various narratives back and forth. PBL, when done right, engages students in learning and practicing these disciplinary skills that are of lasting and transferable value to everything else they'll learn in that discipline, or even across into other disciplines. Effective project-based learning, according to BIE, is always, to some extent, interdisciplinary, at least if it's going to involve real-life, authentic products and processes. The separation of learning into different academic subject areas was something that schools adopted around the turn of the 20th century to try and mimic the world of increasing industrialized separation of different kinds of jobs and knowledge. And while proponents argued this was necessary in order to have teachers teach and students learn different specialized fields of knowledge, it too often comes these days, especially at the high school level, at the cost of any kind of continuity between what students are learning from one hour to the next. In a typical school day, your average ninth or 10th grader arrives, starts learning about quadratic equations for 50 minutes, and then a bell rings, and now they're learning about Shakespeare. And then another bell rings, and they're going off to learn about the circulatory system, and then to go practice long jumping in gym, and then to go learn about the Spanish-American War. The fragmentation and discontinuity of what they learn throughout the day compounds what, for many students, is a fragmented and unpredictable outside of school life. It's not ideal conditions for learning. A great deal of research speaks to the value of helping students to see those connections between and across academic disciplines. And both the promise and the challenge of PBL is that it demands those linkages because real life is not divided neatly into subject areas. If your PBL project is all about raising funds to start a local vaccination clinic for COVID-19, well, you've got to learn and draw upon skills in biology and epidemiology but also public relations and advertising to get people to come, finance to make sure all your resources are in order, local political and administrative processes for making it all happen, and more. It's a great opportunity for students and teachers alike to learn how everything is all connected and interacts, but it's also difficult to map onto a school system that is still designed for fragmentation in everything from the schedule of the school day to the way in which teachers at different academic departments are often physically separated from each other in the building. And it's not just teachers that need to work together for effective PBL. The third key that BIE highlights is structured collaboration between students, emphasis on structured. Any endeavor as complex as a project benefits from, or often is even impossible without, teamwork. Despite the popularized image of the lone inventor having a eureka moment in disrupting an industry, most great human endeavors, from the civil rights movement to the Apollo landing to the development of the coronavirus vaccine, grew out of coordinated efforts by many people working in teams. Whether it's the necessary diversity and clash of ideas, or the basic need to divide up labor for any large undertaking, teamwork at the very least enhances and, in fact, often enables good project-based learning. But as we discuss at length in Season 1, Episode 5, you can't just throw students together in a group and expect them to work well together, any more than you can just throw kids on a basketball court without any training and expect anything less than a disastrous game. We all remember disastrous group work experiences in school, and that's why the key is structured collaboration. Just as kids need explicit drills and shooting, passing, and dribbling in basketball, students also need to be trained in the give and take of working in teams in a classroom 
and they need plenty of opportunities to develop trust and habits of self-evaluation, and that all takes time. In fact, project-based learning in general takes a lot of time to execute, as you're probably starting to figure out, and we'll talk more about all of that in a few minutes. First, the fourth key is that PBL needs to be student-driven. If kids are going to be expected to pursue a single project for several weeks in a deep and sustained way, that project needs to be something that they're actually interested in and find relevant. There needs to be plenty of built-in opportunities for students to tailor, or at least to connect the project to their own personal interests and aspirations. And so a lot of effective PBL is about building things for students' communities. Some of my own best PBL units as a teacher included having my high schoolers prepare a guidebook for middle schoolers in our district. They remembered their own rough transitions between middle and high school and had a keen and authentic interest in helping ease that transition for the next generation, some of which included their own younger siblings. Their motivation to pursue the project was therefore genuine and therefore sustainable, and we used that unit as the context for teaching skills in grammar and composition, writing for an audience, and public presentation. All the while, my students knew that their own reputation and expertise was on the line in representing the high school to the middle schoolers, and that pushed them to take pride in their work and pursue it more avidly than if they were, say, just learning these skills for quizzes and in-class essays that went nowhere except my desk. The fifth and final key to effective PBL, according to the Buck Institute, is assessment. Constant, complex, and multifaceted assessment. At every step along the way, a teacher in a PBL classroom needs to be checking in with her kids, making sure they're on track and not barking up the wrong tree. You can't wait until the final product of a four-week unit to discover that the students haven't developed the necessary skills. There needs to be built-in time throughout the project schedule for redirection and reteaching if need be, for students to try out prototypes that will inevitably fail and from which they'll learn how to improve their work. And that final product needs a pretty complex rubric by which it'll be judged, which takes much more time to create and implement than simply running a quiz through a Scantron. If you're doing it right, it's going to resemble a job performance evaluation more than an answer key. So there you have it, the Buck Institute's five keys to PBL. Core learning, not fluff at the end of a unit, a real-world product or activity, structured collaboration, student-driven origins, and multifaceted assessment all along the way. So, as I hope you can see, project-based learning is a significant undertaking. And if you don't see, take my word from it as a practitioner. PBL is a titanic amount of work, even by the standards of the teaching profession which already placed tremendous expectations upon us. Is it worth it? What does the research say about project-based learning? Well, I'll start with the benefits, and then we'll talk about why, despite those benefits, PBL remains a much-touted but unfortunately rare practice in U.S. public schools. Throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, PBL research yielded a lot of evidence that project-based learning dramatically increased student engagement, which is no small thing, because as we detailed in Season 1, Episode 2, student engagement the ability for kids to see real meaning and thus invest real effort and dedication in their studies tends to peak at around grades two or three and then decline steadily all the way to 12th grade, near universally across the country. Engagement itself has been demonstrated to be a corollary for academic achievement, but studies linking PBL to value-added impact on traditional academic measures of achievement, from GPA to standardized tests, was pretty thin on the ground, 
and the studies that did demonstrate it often involved small sample sizes and or self-selected groups of students, and the studies themselves were often case studies, not randomized control or comparison trials that are the gold standard for social science research. Then the 20-teens did bring a couple of big, rigorous studies that spoke to PBL's efficacy, of which I'll cite three here. The first two, both funded by Lucas Education Research and conducted by researchers from the University of Southern California and Michigan State University. Between those two studies, over 6,000 students in 114 schools from across the U.S. participated, with more than 50% of them coming from low-income households. In one of the studies, over 3,600 students in AP Environmental Science and U.S. government courses from five school districts found that about half of the students in the PBL classes outperformed their counterparts in traditional classrooms by eight percentage points on AP exams, and importantly, that these effects were about as present with the low-income students as they were with the affluent ones. The effects were also seen to be cumulative. The same students who engaged in that PBL curriculum for a second year increased their outperformance to 10 percentage points versus the comparison group. Now, those were high school students. The other study looked at about 2,300 third-grade students in 46 schools who were randomly assigned to either a PBL group or a traditionally instructed comparison group, and like the high school students in the AP study, the elementary students here also saw about an 8 percentage point gain on a test of science learning, and again, the pattern held true across socioeconomics. The third study was conducted by the Stanford Research Institute International and supported by a grant from the National Science Foundation. It involved 3,000 middle school students and 100 teachers in a large and diverse urban school setting. And again, the PBL kids outperformed the ones in traditional classes, and this held true even with students from economically challenged backgrounds. But the big asterisk still hanging over all of this research is that, even more than usual with measuring anything in education, studies of PBL don't compare apples to apples. By its very nature, project-based learning is highly idiosyncratic. It's always shaped by the particular conditions of a given classroom, the interests of those particular students, the particular opportunities for real-world interaction in those communities, and the particular resources available. Now, those studies I mentioned did a great job of trying to control for all that, but the fact remains that it's not like there's a single PBL curriculum out there, easily portable and replicable across any and all schools. Even the Buck Institute provides guidelines for what makes for good PBL, but not, importantly, step-by-step, follow-this-map sort of canned curriculum that makes for easily comparable and generalizable research. As a result, when we talk about a school employing PBL, it's always going to look like a very different animal from what other schools do. And as evolutionary biologists can tell you, not all animals succeed in the wild. It's not like, as a principal or a teacher, you can just say, okay, let's do PBL. You've got to either design these units from the ground up, unique to your school and its students, or adapt it from templates provided by places like Buck, and then do it all over again when student and teacher turnover changes your conditions on the ground. PBL has so many moving parts and is so different from the way in which schools usually operate and the ways in which teachers are trained to operate that it intimidates more than a few teachers and administrators. That's why places like the Buck Institute or California's network of high-tech high schools or EL education charge a premium for extensive faculty trainings. Heck, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a part of the PBL training industrial complex as I designed and teach the PBL training course at Lesley University's Graduate School of Education. 
and I've also consulted independently for schools looking to take on more project-based learning. Not every school or teacher can afford that kind of training, and even if they can, it takes a very supportive administration and collection of colleagues to help you sustain it. And that's hard to do in an educational world where, as mentioned, there's a lot of turnover. And even where there isn't, new reform flavors of the month keep coming at you, and every year seems to bring new transformational mandates that compete for time and resources. Another big obstacle to PBL's implementation is that part of what keeps teachers afloat is that if they survive those first few grueling years, they build up a store of lesson plans and material that they can reuse, so they're not always working to the point of exhaustion each night creating new materials. However, as mentioned, project-based learning is so individualized to each new class and project that often that's exactly what it demands of teachers, to keep recreating new, extensive, and detailed PBL units each year, each semester, to engage new groups of students. I mean, once you have one class successfully build a planetarium for the school, you don't exactly need another. Or maybe you had this terrific grant to put on a big production of a modern-day iteration of Hamlet as the culmination of the study of Shakespeare in your English class, but you probably won't have access to that kind of money the following year, so your plan will have to change. A project that absolutely captures student interest and fascination one year might fall utterly flat in terms of motivating the next year's cohort of kids. Finally, despite all the research on PBL's benefits, there remains a paucity of research demonstrating PBL's direct, value-added impact on state standardized test achievement, the most important, sometimes even singular, metric used to determine school, teacher, and student success in the eyes of state evaluators. These tests tend to privilege old-style, simplistic learning, memorization, recall, and simple applications of knowledge to decontextualized examples. And that's not just because test designers are fuddy-duds stuck in the past, although they often are. It's because standardized tests are about just that, standardization, comparing apples to apples, in a way that we've just discussed is next to impossible with project-based learning. If states want to prioritize comparing schools and students to one another, and there are many reasons to do so, maintaining equity chief among them, well, they're going to be stuck with using very basic measures. And so you get this rather absurd situation that we're in right now, where techniques like project-based learning, because they prepare students for the complexities and nuance of the real world, get discarded because the metric by which school success is judged is by how well they prepare students for artificially simplistic tests of knowledge. Some states, like New Hampshire, have been experimenting with more complex assessment methods over the last few years under special waivers, and there is some preliminary research from two years ago that indicates there might even be some carryover and gains from curriculum focused on preparing students for more complex assessments to simpler assessments as well. But in order to really embrace such complex assessments, states will need to redefine their articulation of content standards, those big lists of things that students are expected to know and know how to do by the end of a given year, and which are currently mapped out, usually, as laundry lists of topics to make sure that teachers and students cover. Because these lists are so extensive, cover usually winds up meaning there's a day's lesson where the learning of that topic is the extensive goal, and then there's a quiz, and then the class moves on. Because PBL takes so much time to implement and privileges depth over breadth, well, that's another reason why many teachers are afraid to employ it. They figure, quite accurately, they won't have the time to hit on all of those many, many standards if they take several weeks to explore just a couple. 
in the kind of depth that PBL both affords and demands. It's a tough balance, and there aren't easy answers, as I remember from an interview I once conducted with a student at a charter high school where project-based learning was the dominant pedagogy. This student told me how she spent a whole semester learning about Japan in the 1920s, and while she learned a great deal, she also felt a little cheated, or at the very least highly curious, about all of the other things that she could have been learning about. PBL advocates will usually counter that, well, project-based learning provides a model for learning anything, and that if students can internalize and replicate that model, they can go on to use it themselves as lifelong learners of whatever it is they want to learn. And that is true to an extent. But that student's concern is one that teachers have to take seriously. And it cuts to the heart of this big question. Is the mission of schools to equip students with a certain canon of basic knowledge? Or is it to teach certain universally applicable skills? And the answer, of course, is both. In some ways, those two goals are interdependent. But just where along that spectrum you want to settle remains the subject of intense debate. As I've mentioned a few times, I've been employing project-based learning for over a decade in my classes, and I'll be the first to speak to both how difficult it is to get it right, and also how amazingly engaging it is when you do, and the kind of work that students, especially traditionally disengaged students, can pull off in project-based learning is very impressive. My students have worked as advertising content consultants for local businesses, engaged in acts of local and even national activism, started foundations and NGOs, planted gardens, and made presentations to a wide variety of political and industry leaders in the local area. I will also say that my instruction in ground-level basic skills took a bit of a backseat to those big-picture missions, and whether that's a failure of my own teaching or of PBL as a pedagogy, I'm not prepared to say. But like any teacher is supposed to, I'm always revising and improving what I do. There really should be a way to engage students with both the big picture and the granular ground game, and I hope that every year I'm drawing a little bit closer to that perfect synthesis. The reason I'm sticking with PBL is because it just strikes me as the kind of learning that fits with the dynamic, complex, and highly socially connected world in which we live and into which our students are graduating. It offers a vision, however imperfect, of what schools could be if they ever freed themselves from this outdated 19th century factory model in which they're too often trapped, to the detriment of students everywhere. If we say that we want a generation of innovators, disruptors, problem solvers, and activist leaders, then we're simply not going to get there if we restrict ourselves to lectures and multiple-choice tests. But finally, I just love how project-based learning empowers students, or at least has the potential to. When it works, it gives them experience, from a young age, with using their voice, with creating something new and unique, with seeing through an idea from conception to final production, and with making an impact that they can see and feel immediately. And that, to use a highly technical phrase, is what we call a very cool thing. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. 
Thanks again for listening. And remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.